Welcome to Tales of My Dead Heroes. I'm Josh Allen Friedman. Here on episode 17, we present part two on songwriter Doc Promise, the finest man and bluesiest guy of them all. I just got your letter, baby. Too bad you can't come home. Sister, don't you? Little sister, don't you? Little sister, don't you kiss me once or twice and say it's very nice of me? Every time you kiss me, I'm still not certain that you love me. Every time you hold me, I'm still not certain that Those are several of the two dozen songs co-written by Doc Pomus for Elvis Presley. Elvis's manager, Colonel Tom Parker, was a notorious carnival huckster, so much so that he prided himself as a snowman, as in snow job or con artist. He never watched the crappy 1960s movies he made Elvis do and knew nothing about music, but he could sell, gamble, flim-flam, and forge, so he set up his own tongue-in-cheek club called the Snowmen's League of America. Here's Doc in 1978, six months after Elvis died. I want Parker sees this article. I had met Parker years ago. And uh, since I grew up, we're pretty friendly. He made me a member of the Snowman Society. He's got this society, you know, Snowman, which would be prevaricators, uh, you know. And he has a, he has a, 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 he sends out, he has a bunch of uh, certificates. And he only has chosen a few or made members of the society. And I was kidding with him so much one day, and I matched him story for story, because I, you know, I wanted to turn him on, that he sent me a plaque in the mail, and I became a member of the Stoneman Society. So I didn't see him for years later, and for whatever reasons, I had never met Presley. Now mind you, when I first heard him sing, I was completely captivated. And all I ever wanted to do, really, was to meet him. I never met him. Then next day, I wanted him to record a song, and then the next thing I got hits, and it was all, it was too much, I couldn't believe that this guy was probably my favorite singer, and it reached a point where he was recording songs of mine, and I was seeing them all over, rather hearing them all over, then, I would, then they would get recorded in the movies, you know? So all, but I had never seen him on better. So several years ago, Presley was in New York, he was going to do the Felt Forum show, I think, and there was a press conference uh, at the Hilton Hotel. So this is a few years ago? Yeah. And you'd never even met him? I had him? never met him. I had never seen him. So I went down there and there, there was the press interview. And, and he was taking questions from the audience. But if I tell you, I was too overwhelmed to ask him a question. But Parker was there. So I called Parker over and I said, Colonel, I, you know, I've never met Elvis. Can I meet him? He said no. So Parker's, uh, Elvis's father was there. We went, I was really heartbroken, and I went to the restaurant and Parker, and Elvis's father was right next to me, I introduced myself, and he told me, gee, Elvis would love to meet you and all this, but Elvis was gone from the hotel at that time, so Parker had prevented me from meeting him. The colonel also never allowed Elvis to meet Doc's close friend, Otis Blackwell, 
who wrote Don't Be Cruel, All Shook Up, and Return to Sender. And the colonel destroyed relations with Lieber and Stoller, whom Elvis considered his personal good luck charms. So Parker effectively prevented Presley from associating with the five greatest songwriters of Elvis's career, Lieber and Stoller, Thomas and Schumann, and Otis Blackwell. Ensuring that Presley only recorded songs like Clambake throughout his run of schlock movies. So now, a couple of months ago, I was writing a song with this fellow Bruce Foster, who's a talented writer. So uh, Bruce and I were writing, and I was making preparations, and I had it fixed up for us to meet Presley, because he was coming to town the next week. And I had it all set for us to meet Presley. And Bruce left, and I went inside and turned on television, and there it was that he, that he just died. So it was very scary. If Presley had been able to befriend and get close to a man like Doc Pomus, instead of Colonel Parker and sycophants, who knows? There's no telling how much better his life might have turned out. Doc would have been perfect to straighten him out. By the 1980s, Doc wasn't writing rock and roll songs for the teenage market. He was writing adult blues for B.B. King, Joe Cocker, Ray Charles, the aging Big Joe Turner, and especially songs with and for Mac Rabinac, Dr. John. But I was curious how professional songwriters of the Brill Building era were given assignments to write specifically for certain acts. Hypothetically, I asked, how would Doc write a blues for, say, Johnny Winter? He said he'd keep the lyrics simple. Wayne Newton had recently covered Doc's song, Everybody Loves Me, which was written for Jose Feliciano. So I asked, well, what if Wayne Newton's people asked you to write a song for Wayne Newton? He said, that would require an extraordinary amount of money. Here's Doc in 1983. Doc, yeah. how do you tailor a song to someone? When you're when like in the 50s, when you, if you were hired to write for Elvis or now for B.B. King, how do you sit down and you're going to write a song with him in mind? Well, we got an assignment. You must remember what that meant was that we knew that somebody was coming up for a recording session. So, or else there was a spot in the movie. The only situation with Presley, he once gave us an assignment to write uh, an English version of O Solomio, which turned out to be Surrender. The way I used to go from there, I would say to myself, what kind of song could this guy sing? I never thought in terms of his last record or how he generally sang. I always, because I had a background as a singer, I always just think about his singing abilities, you know? That's why I had records with Andy Williams singing songs that he had never dreamed about singing. For a fact, he used to hate all his records. We had a number one song with him and he, he, wouldn't, he wouldn't sing the song live. He hated it. Well, you know, I mean, that's what you're dealing with, you know? Yeah. But at any rate, he, he I just, I felt he could record that. Can't get used to the love. Using it. That was it. Can't get used to losing you no matter what I try to do. Gonna live my whole life through loving you. Call up some girl I used to know. And the only time he sang it, he had his own television show. And he was on the, he kept playing the other side on his television singing the other side on his television show. And finally, our song got to be number one in the country, and he was forced to play it, forced to do it. But he wouldn't do it all the, time, all the time. But that's the kind of things you would have to contend with. Well, you, why even bother? I mean, after that, you probably never wanted to... 
Doc's wife, the mother of his children, was Broadway actress Willie Burke. And before her, he had an affair with Veronica Lake. It's unclear as to what Doc could do in his later years, what with his weight and being in a wheelchair, but it was never an issue. Beautiful women were drawn to him in ways that older men could only dream of. They wanted to confess their troubles, lie around on his big brass bed, or lay their head on his shoulder and fall asleep. He was a Buddha-like teddy bear. And with that kind of female attention, maybe you don't need too much more. Believe it or not, somebody came over to me from out of town at the Lone Star one night, didn't even know I was a songwriter. Just started a weird conversation with me. You know, I thought it was another nut, right? Mm-hmm. After an hour of the conversation, the person said, uh, what do you do? You understand? I said, I'm a songwriter. So she said, oh, I'm singing background in the show up here. Oh, she said, do you ever, you got any songs? I said, yeah, here's my card. It was a gag, you know. About a month later, she called me up and she says, you know, I'm really embarrassed that, you know, I found out, you know, because she was singing with Peter Rowan's band and I didn't even stay for the show. But it got really weird. Let me tell you what happened. When I met, she was born on the month I made my last record. And we figured out maybe it was the same day. It turned out that the first song she ever learned was a song I had written. Her mother's favorite song was my mother's favorite song. I mean, it got into a series of coincidences that were so eerie. And I never believe in those things, you know. But How old is she? 28 years old. And then when I played the first song I had written, she started crying. I mean, the first of the new batch of songs I had written. I mean, it was all fucking weird, man, you Which know. Which new batch was this? A bunch I had written with Ken Hirsch, you know. Every song I played her, like all the new songs, I've never seen anybody react to songs the way she reacted. What does she do? She's a singer. But well, how did she react? I mean, like she understood she everything that I was trying to do in the song. That doesn't happen often, you know. And then, so she asked me if I would work with her. I said, yeah. And I'm telling you, it's been like a miracle. This broad is learning how to sing. She became an excellent singer. And like right now, she sings as good as somebody like Laura Branigan. And I think in about a month, She's getting better, that's all. Unbelievable. I mean, like, she's gotten so good. And she's really industrious. Like, she lives in an all-girls dormitory. You know what I mean? That's a good sign. You know what I'm saying? A real good sign, right? My girlfriend is in What? Yeah, yeah. Maggie is in an all-girls dormitory. That's what I mean. It's a good sign. And uh, she's, like, uh, and she's working now. She's got two jobs. She's delivering balloons for one of the, and singing telegrams. That's what she's doing. I mean, it's sometimes we sit and talk about this shit, and, you know, it gets scary. And she came over to me not knowing I was a songwriter. And she walked over me and I said, oh, another fucking nut. You understand? Because these nuts come over to me all the time, you know? I can attest to this. Nuts came up to Doc all the time. I remember one night some singer in Nashville called Doc at three in the morning because her cat was up on the roof, and what should she do? No, we're working to get to get a recording thing done. You but she probably, you think that she probably will. Isn't oh, it? I think that I'll be able to. I uh, hopefully soon. I I have some of my favorite singers I played for her. This is a twenty eight year old girl. It's not like somebody who who knows this shit. She reacted to some of these singers. Who did you play? Like Jimmy Scott. Like there's a singer that nobody knows. I played Jimmy Scott, and now that's her favorite singer. Little Jimmy Scott sang with Lionel Hampton's big band in the nineteen forties and fifties and was a favorite singer of Billie Holiday and Dinah Washington. But he had one of the hardest luck careers in jazz. Every album release was hexed or pulled from the shelves for terrible business reasons beyond his control. Jimmy Scott's recording career and comeback was secured only after he sang at Doc Pomas' funeral. 
1991. But if she becomes a big star, that would be extraordinary. Is she attractive? Yeah, very nice she's looking girl. All stage presence kind of thing. Yeah, well, I yeah. saw her only on stage once. She's pretty good, you know what I mean? I don't remember the singer's name. I think it was Donna. But she's in a photo sitting with us at the Lone Star Cafe. It's posted on the blackcracker.fm website for last week's part one podcast on Doc. Like something like Laura Branigan can make it. Right now she's a right now she can sing pop songs like these old ballads that Linda Ronstead did. No. Someone to watch over there. And she sings it better than Linda Ronstead right now. And I got a piano player that I work with with this shit usually. And he used to be Laura Branigan's piano player. He says already she's way better than Brad. I asked Doc what he thought about Linda Ronstadt's current 1983 American Songbook album, Lush Life. She did set a trend for rock singers returning to older songs, but sorry, Linda. What do you make of that record? Oh, she stinks. I mean, you know, she's just a... You can get anybody in a cocktail lounge out in Peoria, Illinois, will sing it better than her, you know, but it's lucky she's Linda Ronstadt. How did she get the... Do you, did you, uh, she can do anything she wants at this point in her life, you know. Who did, she gets Nelson Riddle. You know, Nelson Riddle will make my daughter sound good. The thing with Donna never quite took off. But by the 1980s, music figures like Jerry Wexler, Lieber and Stoller, or Doc Pomus could no longer just put someone on the charts with their magic touch. Believe me, I learned the hard way after my own first album. The record industry and radio was now tightly controlled by lawyers, agents, and corporations that knew or cared little about music. Doc was a dear friend and admirer of Phil Spector and would have been deeply upset if he had lived to see Spector finally commit a murder. He believed Spector was eccentric, but not as crazy as everyone made him out to be. He tells this in 1983. Listen, Spector's got a thing about guns. The last time I saw him in California, he was showing Leonard Cohen how to shoot guns. And they were walking around the estate with guns, and that's when I left, you know. I wanted no part of it. I was there when they started that ill-fated album, you know. They made this the album. Cohen one? Yeah. You said and that would happened, resurface in 10 years. Pardon me? You said it would resurface in 10 years. Yeah. Well, I tell you, I thought it was a fascinating album. The album was Leonard Cohen's Death of a Ladies' Man in 1977. Cohn at the time called the album a catastrophe and had a gun held on his throat by Spectre in the studio. The, the thing that hurt that album worse than anything was that the Cohn went around telling, telling all the critics he hated the album. You know, had a what, was, was there any, what was fascinating about it? Was it anything well, I thought were, it was a great combination of people. You know, I mean, I thought Cohen being respected was just great. See, when I when I came, I came there, the first day they had started writing together, and I didn't know it was Cohen. I saw this guy in his black suit, and the other person there was Marty Michette, who was Phil's lawyer. Now, this guy, Leonard Cohen, had a very pretty girl with him, Suzanne, who I later found out was Suzanne of Leonard Cohen's song. So I see these two guys in dark suits, and I take for granted that Leonard Cohen is a lawyer with Marty Machat, you know? So Cohen starts talking to me about, about how he loved my songs when he was in Canada. He used to play them on a jukebox all the time. And I say, i got to listen to a lawyer telling me this nonsense now. And then after a while, Cohen went in the back, in, in the other room, with Spectre, 
and Spector sat down at the piano, and Cohen had, he was making noise, sounds with his mouth, and playing a song that they had just written, and suddenly I realized, this can't be Leonard Cohen a lawyer, maybe this is Leonard Cohen the writer, and sure enough, but before the afternoon was up, Spector got Cohen bombed, and they both had guns out, and that's when I said, I am leaving. Specter would always brandish guns in people's faces. He finally killed some poor actress in 2003. That was 12 years after Doc passed away. Phil Specter now wastes away in prison. We went out with him one night. I had a driver at that time who was a tough kid. And when I first went to California at that particular time, I was spending the nights with Specter, and he had never been out of his apartment. He hadn't been out for months. So, every night he'd call me up and he'd tell me, one night he'd say, Mohammed Ali's going to be there. The next night he'd tell me, Will Chamberlain's going to be there. He always had this list of celebrities. We'd get there, nobody was ever there. It was always Bonnie Kessel's twins that were like acting like his gophers, you know. And they were there, plus uh, an over-the-hill over overage groupie that he used to know would be around to cook the meals or to, or to go and bring a pizza back, right? So it was really sad. I would see him every night like this. So, And he hadn't been out for months. So finally, I got him to go out a couple of times. And it was a total disaster because he had some steakhouse that he used to go to in the valley called Bob Burns. So he went to this steakhouse and the first thing he did, he walked over to the bartender no, to a guy sitting at the bar and accused him of being homosexual. Well, the guy was about seven foot tall. I thought it was all over. So, then Spectre's getting drunk, and every time he gets past the point, he'd go in the bathroom and throw up, come back and drink, drink some more. Finally, the place is empty. There's nobody left. And we notice that the big homosexual guy, or rather, the guy he called the homosexual was waiting in the corner. So now, we're gonna, we couldn't get Spectre to leave all night because now he's so drunk he can't move. He's unconscious and he's got two guns with him. So I was only afraid there's going to be a problem. The guy comes over and the guy says, what did you say to me before? And I said, this is it, man. I'm going to be here <laughs> when it's all going to happen, you know. And my driver, who was an absolute, I couldn't tell you, he was a moron. But this is one... One heroic One stance. heroic. He went over to the guy and said, Listen, you see the three of us? We all have revolvers, and if you don't leave, we're going to shoot you. And the guy turned around and ran out. Because I, I surely thought this was going to be... Whose driver was this? What? Is this a, did I ever meet no, this? No, the one? guy used to work for me. Uh, what the hell was his name? Uh, Jeff. Remember Jeff? Yeah, you knew Jeff. Sure, I, I think I, yeah, I liked him a lot. Yeah, kind of short guy with glasses. I think I liked him a lot. Yeah, he was all right. One thing I shared with Doc was my sense of awe and wonderment at how deluded people could be. How many posers, fakers, and no talents dominated the music biz. Doc was plagued by a chronic succession of chauffeurs who would disappear under bizarre circumstances. I could write a book about drivers, he constantly complained, having to interview replacements while stuck for weeks in his apartment. The sheer logistics of getting around Manhattan Deciding which invitations to honor, lest they leave him stranded without wheelchair access, was overwhelming. 
These lifelong dilemmas he never once weighed upon his friends. Doc's driver was a full-time on-call employee, required to transport him to his stomping grounds, clubs whose entrances could accommodate a wheelchair. Drivers were to check back periodically, but inevitably left him trapped amid torturous rock bands at Kenny's castaways. The moment the driver arrived, the wheelchair vanished backward like a ghost. This image, which I witnessed a hundred times, was a metaphor for bad music. Most drivers, after a few weeks of good service, felt they were entitled to a songwriting partnership or to be sponsored in some crazed business venture. Once Doc hooked up with an impeccable, well-mannered gentleman in his 40s who drove perfectly and kept his mouth shut. Sure enough, after several sterling months, the cops came by. It turned out this guy was a wanted pederast, a ranking member of NAMBLA, who suddenly ran off to Belgium to resume a relationship with a 13-year-old boy. Inevitably, this type of news hit Doc when the bus was double-parked, the driver making a run for it, and stranding him in a crowded club with a loud, poodle-faced cucumber-pants band. But, uh, they all the, show. well, no, you know what happened? He worked for me for six years. The first four years were great. But after two years, he, he resented the fact, that, number one, he wasn't my partner, and that he wasn't, you know, <laughs> that his life hadn't gone anywhere. It wasn't my fault, you know. Nobody had a gun to his head. And he quit twice and came back twice. So he, like, he bought himself good suits and liked to hang around. And, like, they'd ask him, well, what do you do? You know, what is he going to say? I would tell him, why don't you tell me you're my secretary? That would be better than being my driver, you understand? He couldn't even do that. He'd always, like, magically make, like, he's the man behind the scene or something. You know, what am I going to do? But I went along with it. You know, once in a while, once we would snuff Garrett out in the coast, and it got a little weird, you know? Because snuff asked him, what do you do exactly? Because the first time we were over there, and he couldn't, he just couldn't tell Snuffy was my driver, you know? When we got, when we were on the coast and I'd have my name on list, you know, like a guest list to go somewhere, he would say that uh, he would look for his name on the list. If he didn't see his name on the list, he said, you should have run two names there. He would get very upset about them. What can you do? You know, crazy. But you see, I'm too smart for that shit. You know, I mean, I understand. You know, a guy's going to be close to you and live in your shadow, it's going to be very upsetting. The only thing is, I used to sit down with him and I said to him, listen, now you can make more of this job if you want to. You know, I said, you want to run with songs? I used to always tell him that. But he eventually couldn't do it. What do you mean you want to run with songs? He, he couldn't do it. You know, he he knew writing. he couldn't, you know? Doc finally called his bluff and said, okay, you want to be partners? Let's write some songs. And the chauffeur couldn't write a word or a note. Hanging with Doc back in 1978, I became Ronnie Spector's boyfriend. We'd go out on the town in the Dockmobile, a foursome of me and Ronnie and my tough chick pal, Karen McAvoy, who became one of Doc's downhill women. The first few months with Ronnie were great, but after Thanksgiving of that year, things suddenly went bad. Real bad. I will now digress here in the season finale of this podcast and read the opening from a chapter in my book, Tell the Truth Until They Bleed. Mr. Nobody I am what some in the business refer to as a ponce. That is, 
I'm the emasculated man behind a famous female from whom I derive my sense of self-worth and from whose stardom I live through. Sound the trumpets. I am Ronnie Spector's boyfriend. Someday, I hope to be Mr. Ronnie Spector. We are currently on tour, exiting the lobby of the Hilton, two blocks from the Hempstead Diner Theater. It's right before showtime. Ronnie and I rendezvous with her backup singers in the lobby. I personally pass out the girls' costumes from the one-hour French cleaners, a standard poncely duty. This is Ronnie's umpteenth backup duo since her original early 60s girl group. These generic Ronettes are gorgeous Puerto Rican chicks, both 19, accompanied by their Italian boyfriends. Both guys have blow-dried coifs and three-piece vested suits, just like John Travolta in Saturday Night Fever, the top film out now. They, too, are disco princes, each with his own Corvette. It's raining outside. Boyfriend number one pulls up to the entrance in his Corvette. His girl squeals, jumps in. Then boyfriend number two screeches his wheels to a halt, popping open the passenger door for his chick, who proudly hops in. And I'm standing there with Ronnie, who's in sequins, heels, and stage makeup. I'm carrying this tiny travel umbrella, barely big enough for one, which I pop open as I lead her out the door. It's the longest two-block walk of my life. You mean to say I'm the fucking star and I have to watch my backup singers get into expensive cars, which their boyfriends are considerate enough to provide, while I have to walk in the fucking rain to my own fucking concert in front of my singers, in front of my fans, in front of the whole tour bus? Do you know how embarrassed I am what that makes me look like? Couldn't you have at least rented a car? It's only two blocks. I should rent a car to travel two blocks? If you knew how to treat me like a lady, which you don't have a clue, you'd have rented a limo. I'm only the fucking star. I spent my last 20 bucks just to get here from the city. I am totally broke. You ain't broke, you cheap. Where the fuck you get that umbrella? It's a travel umbrella. You cheap, baby, that's all there is to it. Too cheap to get a regular size. Telling you to your teeth. I don't exactly manage Ronnie which is the province of suitcase pimps and agents, or usually some former garage mechanic who sh shacks up with a beauty queen, declares himself manager, then fancies himself a showbiz empresario until his big plans glean nothing. No, I'm a guitar player. At least I'm not a drummer, something Ronnie doesn't even consider to be a musician. Ronnie's never heard my band, and frankly, I think I'd freeze up. Friends and employers have stopped calling. They know I'm pretty heavy into this relationship. She always insists I make more time for us. Tonight's the first family Thanksgiving I ever missed. Ronnie accused me of being a child for wanting to go home to the folks. Thanksgiving was just another work night on her Roy Raiden vaudeville tour itinerary. We enter the theater wet. Sure enough, some of the performers in the show see us walk in. Ronnie, radiating smiles, chats a moment with Joe Fraser, former heavyweight champ. His nightly routine on the show is to walk on stage amidst applause and lift Eddie Fisher up over his head as he sings, reminiscent of the film scene in which Mighty Joe Young rises from beneath the bandstand, Atlas style, holding aloft the pianist. Joe Fraser thinks you a fucking moron, Ronnie tells me. What do you mean? We never met. You want to go argue with Joe Fraser? That's what he said when he walked by. Is that your boyfriend? 
He called you a that and gave me a look like, what are you doing with such a loser? What? He stands on stage every night like a circus ape. I'm embarrassed to face him again. You'll manage. I have to tour with these people. Throw that fucking umbrella away. But I didn't understand it, babe. Telling it to your teeth. And if I don't tell you, no one else will. And I'm the biggest woman you'll ever fucking meet in life. Because I'm telling you to your teeth where your head is at. But I'm just telling you the truth. And I told you to your face and to your teeth. But goddamn, baby, I'm honest. And that's my problem. It's telling the fucking people to their teeth. You have the nerve to turn around and say, to your teeth? What does that mean? Like, you're playing so fucking coy. That's your problem. I mean, you know, goddamn, baby. I mean, you really suck, and I'm just telling you to your teeth you suck. And you don't know, oh, that's like you don't know what the words, teeth, to your teeth, to your face. You get that? You had to be at your family for Thanksgiving. So you made it to me like, oh, well, I'm not coming to see the show. I'm coming to see you. You did, Josh. You had Thanksgiving dinner with your fucking family. And I was like, after they came, you told me to, to my teeth. And that's what I, that's what, when I, when my love went down the toilet with you. Right now, I'd like to play a little song. I had the pleasure of writing with my good partner, Jerome, better known as Doc Palmas. Julian wrote called, uh, Just Your Average Kind of Guy. I'm overworked, underpaid, underloved, and overlaid. Doc Palmas was no Damon Runyon character. He was a leading man, a stabilizing figure of integrity in a music industry that had come to resemble a corporate cesspool. Doc's loss to New York City was, to me, like losing the Statue of Liberty. At least now they can't say I died young, he cracked at his 60th birthday. He was 65 when he passed away in 1991. So here's a shout out to Doc's beautiful family who keep his legacy going at felderpomis.com. His daughter Sharon, his son Jeffrey, and their mother, the actress Willie Burke, his son-in-law Will, and granddaughter Lily. And with that, we conclude my second podcast season, Tales of My Dead Heroes. Thank you to my co-producers, Peggy Bennett and Aaron Presley. Visit our website at blackcracker.fm, where you can hear conversations with other heroes like Jerry Lieber, Mario Puzo, Jack Bruce, Al Goldstein, and Tiny Tim. And our first season is there, Tales of Times Square, The Tapes, now in development as an animated TV show. For next season, we're planning to produce original radio plays by writers like Bruce J. Friedman, Terry Southern, and even myself. This is Josh Allen Friedman signing off for now. See you all soon. I'm overworked, underpaid, underloved, and overlaid.